Amen. Uh, so thankful to be able to hear your voices and to uh, sing praise to God together as a church again. And uh, again, welcome to those of you who uh, find it best right now to continue to be at home uh, and watching online. Grateful that you're joining us as well. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And like I told you last week, we're doing this series called Don't Miss This One, looking through some of the Bible's shortest books. And so hard to find some of these short books when you're just paging through. Go ahead, use the table of contents at the beginning. And this one does come, of course, after First Thessalonians. So that makes it a little bit easier as well. We're in the book of Second Thessalonians. We're just spending the maximum we're going to spend in any book during this series is three weeks. A lot of books we'll get through in one week. But here we're in week two of three from the book of Second Thessalonians because there's three chapters. We're just spending one week on each chapter. Last week, I said in my study, as I try to come up with and write in my own Bible, just kind of a little subtitle, a quick reference to remind me, what's this book about again? The one I write for Second Thessalonians is this, Jesus is yet to return, so stand firm and get back to work. So that's what uh, I came up with. You might, after we study this together, have a bit of a different understanding of what exactly the big idea of Second Thessalonians is. That's helpful for me. Last week, we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in that chapter, we saw a problem, a solution, and a prayer. That's actually going to be, if you printed out the uh, sermon notes and application guide from the website, from the email I sent out, uh, that's actually the same kind of outline we're using this week. Problem, solution, and prayer. It's just the problem is going to be different, the solution is going to be different, and the content of the prayer is going to be different. But last week, we noticed that a major problem for the church in Thessalonica was this persecution and affliction that they were enduring. That was the problem. What was the solution? Well, Paul kind of fast-forwarded to the ultimate solution, and that is that ultimate justice would come when Jesus returns. And then he ends that chapter by praying for them, praying specifically for God's continued work in this persecuted, afflicted, but also a church in which love for one another and their faith in Jesus was increasing. So that's what we looked at last week. Now, this week, like I said, also going to see a problem, a solution, and a prayer. But the problem is going to be this. They've been deceived about the second coming of Jesus. The solution is going to be really twofold. Believe the truth and stand firm. And then finally, we're going to see a prayer at the end of this chapter again, this time for comfort and strength. And what I'm going to do at the end, just so you know, if you're like, oh man, he's talking a long time and we're not at the end yet. Uh, that, that prayer at the end, rather than talk a lot about that prayer at the end, I'm just going to use that uh, as a, as a, as a um, kind of model for a prayer that we're just going to pray together as the closing prayer. Uh, so here's, uh, here's what the message is called today. Jesus is yet to return, so believe the truth and stand firm. And the big idea today, I think, is this. Don't be shaken or deceived. Jesus is yet to return, so believe the truth. Remember who you are. Stand firm as God comforts and establishes you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I am uh, really, really thankful for your word. Uh, kind of like Jess just shared earlier, 
if it's if it's just up to me uh, to share my words today, everybody might as well just go home. Um, but God, I thank you that that's not what we're gathered for. We're gathered because you have inspired the Apostle Paul to write every one of these words to the church in Thessalonica that also have much application for us today. So I pray that that would become clear in a way that we recognize it's your Holy Spirit doing the work in us for the good of many, for our own good, and especially for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin with a problem, okay? The problem in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is going to be this, deception regarding the second coming of Jesus. So let's look at starting with verse 1. We're going to go through all of this chapter, only 17 verses, and here's how it begins. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, Okay. So, so this is the subject of chapter 2. The subject is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week in chapter 1, he let them know everything's going to be just once Jesus comes. So of course they're longing for this. And he told them there are one of two options when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, either you will be those who will be judged by him, or you will be those who marvel at his coming and are gathered together to be with him forever. And so the church, the believers, they're waiting for this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him. I think this is pretty clearly teaching of one kind of event, one event yet to come in the future where Jesus comes again and the saints are gathered together with him. So that's the subject of chapter two. But then he says, we ask you brothers, verse two now, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So he's making it clear to them that they are to be longing for this coming. I want to talk to you about the coming of Jesus and our being gathered together with him, but there's a concern on Paul's part that they are being deceived. They're being deceived in some way about this second coming of Jesus. What's the particular deception? What do you see it there? That the day of the Lord has come. That's what they're being deceived about. And you can understand how this would cause them to be shaken in mind or alarmed. If their understanding, if what they had been taught is that Jesus is going to come again, and when he comes, the saints will be gathered together with him, and here they are, continuing to live, and they've heard this false teaching from somewhere that the day of the Lord has already come. Uh Uh-oh. They might be starting to doubt. Maybe, Maybe I don't actually belong to him. Maybe I'm not one of the saints. Maybe I wasn't really saved. And so you understand why they're shaken in mind or alarmed. It's because they've been deceived. Somebody's been telling them that Jesus already came back. Okay? So there is deception regarding the second coming. That's the first point. A point of application to go along with that first point is this. There are common deceptions still about the second coming of Jesus in our day. Okay? We're going to talk about two things, though. 
We're going to talk about common deceptions in our day, and we're going to acknowledge some common disagreements in our day. Okay? So, common deceptions first. These are things that are unacceptable, that we need to beware, beware of and seek to avoid. Here's a couple of common deceptions in our day. One is this, believing that the coming of Jesus has already happened. That was the same thing the church in Thessalonica had been duped into believing. Somebody had been teaching them, the day of the Lord has already come, Jesus has come back. Okay? The major group in our area that still teaches something like that are the Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that Jesus came back spiritually in the year 1914. Okay? This is a deception in our day that when we hear it, uh, we reject it. We say this is not true. This is not what Scripture teaches. Jesus didn't come back spiritually in the year 1914. Okay. Another, I think, common deception, and I didn't put this one on there, would just be simply this idea that, like, I know when Jesus is coming back, so everybody get ready. There's people every once in a while, there's kind of these cycles. Hey, I've got the date figured out because I looked at that star and this moon and all this stuff, and now I know when Jesus is coming back, and here's the date. Don't listen to those guys, okay? Um, but there's also another common deception that I think is much more common in our day. And that is this, just living like it's not going to happen. It's not, it's not that somebody's given some false teaching about the timing of Jesus coming. It's more like you've started to believe this lie because I've lived, you know, 40 years for me now, however many years for you. He hasn't come back. The people in Thessalonica thought he was coming back in their generation. This book was written in like 50-something A.D. All these generations of believers have been waiting and still, Jesus hasn't come back. And you can start to get and kind of get lulled to sleep, believing this lie, like maybe it's just not really going to happen. That's a deception. And you need to be aware of that. Because when you start to believe that Jesus, the judge, is really not coming back, that affects the way that we live. So here's what we believe as a church. This is just out of our EFCA statement of faith. So our statement of faith is a collection of 10 statements that we say, hey, we're going to be different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We recognize that. We can disagree on all sorts of different things, but these 10 things are what we hold on to. This is us as a church. This is what we will uh, hold on to tightly with a closed fist. And there are 10 statements. And statement number nine is a statement about the return of Jesus. And here's what we say as a church we believe about the return of Jesus. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So we reject this, this uh, deception from like Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus returned spiritually one time already. Okay? We reject a lot of other things that they would teach as well. But we believe in a personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, not a spiritual return only. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant ex expectancy and as our blessed hope. Like we want this to happen, right? Motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So that's what we believe. And we, if there is some other kind of teaching, we would say we need to be careful, see that maybe for what it is as a deception, and reject it. Now, just really quick, 
For some of you, we start talking about end time stuff and Jesus coming and your ear, like your antenna are up, your ears, you're tuned in. Others of you, you're ready to tune out already. Hang in there with me. I just want to point out two things. I'm going to super, hopefully make it as simple as possible because I want to distinguish between deceptions, that is these two things, believing it's already happened and living like it's not going to happen. That's a deception, okay? And a disagreement over the details. We can disagree about the details of the when and how of Jesus is coming and not be deceived or believing something unbiblical. Okay, so common disagreements in our day regarding the second coming are uh, often about the timing or the order of events. Okay, you'll find a lot of people who have maybe done some studying in this area will come to and they might agree with you and with me that that the Bible is the authoritative, authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God, that Jesus is the only God. He's the only way to be saved. Right. All this stuff. They believe all of that with us. And we might come to different conclusions on the details of the second coming of Jesus. And there are some things that we will hold with a more open hand. Hey, we can have fellowship with one another and disagree about the timing and order of events when it comes to the return of Jesus. For example, I'm just going to put two up there to simplify it. Okay? What most of the church has believed for most of church history and around even today and in most of the world, most Christians have understood the order of events to go this way, that we are currently living in a day we can call today, okay? And sometime yet in the future, there is going to be a time of great tribulation and trial on this earth. At the end of that time, Jesus will come again and the saints, all those who believe in Jesus, dead and alive, will be gathered together with him as he comes to rule and to reign. Okay? That is uh, what's been most commonly taught, like I said, throughout most of church history in, in most of the world still today. But there's a second way, and we can agree to disagree about this. We have people in our church, we have members of our church. You can believe either of these two things and be a member of our church, believe either of these two things and be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess in our church. Others would believe something that's really more new. Uh, 1830s, John Darby begins to teach what became known as dispensationalism, where there's a lot of kind of separating and dividing up uh, in a number of different things, but it affects end times. And that is teaching this idea that we are now in today. There is coming a time when there will be a a gathering of the saints in in something like a a kind of a, a more secret rapture kind of event where believers are gathered together to be with Jesus in the air. And then they're gone for a while while tribulation happens here on the earth. And then Jesus comes again. Okay. So this was a popular or kind of laid out in the 1830s, popularized by Hal Lindsey in his books in the 1970s and 80s, and then further popularized by a set of uh, fiction books and movies called Left Behind in the 1990s. Okay. You can, you can believe that, agree with that, and be a member of our church personally. I just like to be honest with people. That's not where I stand. I don't think that's the clearest teaching of Scripture. I think the clearest teaching of Scripture, including the passage that we're looking at today, is that there is one event where it's the second coming of Jesus and the saints being gathered together with him coming after a time of tribulation. Okay? So, that makes sense. So, some of you are like, oh, good, we're done with that. And others are like, let's keep talking. Uh, we're going to keep going. 
uh, I want to get to talking more about Jesus. Here's the solution. Problem is, in the church in Thessalonica, and it still happens in our day, there was deception, not just disagreement about details, but deception about the second coming of Jesus. Solution to that problem is what? Solution number one, believe the truth about the second coming. Okay? Believe the truth about the second coming. Now, I'm not saying, and Paul is not saying that order of events is not important because order of events is important, and that's exactly what we're going to see in the rest of verse 3. Have you seen this picture on social media? It's maybe somewhere. <laughs> Can you read it? The picture is, this is a picture of an asteroid crater in Arizona. Look how close it came to hitting the visitor center. You get, you get the joke? You get the, the joke is, right? The joke wasn't that somebody built a visitor center out in the desert and a crater happened to hit right there. No, the order of events was a crater hit and then they built a visitor center, right? That's why it's funny. Um, some of you are like, I don't really get it. It's fine. It's important to understand the order of events, right? The order of events is important. So let's look at the rest of verse 3. The rest of verse 3 says this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way for that day. What day? The day of the Lord, right? The day when Jesus comes again, the saints are gathered with him. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay, so Paul's just laying out there's going to be an order of things. Remember, what they're deceived about, they've thought, oh, Jesus has already come. And he's trying to make it clear to them, no, he's not. He's not going to come until two things happen. A rebellion, or another word uh, for that is apostasy. That is, a number of people who maybe at once appeared to be God-fearing people, maybe even claim to be Christians, are going to turn away from Christ and believe lies. Okay? There's going to be a rebellion, a turning against Christ, and this figure known as the man of lawlessness here in chapter 2 is going to be revealed. These things will happen, he says, before the day of the Lord comes. All right. Now, again, to try to simplify this, I'm going to look at this because he's talking about order of events. I want to just walk us through. We're going to come back to verse 4. We're going to skip over it for now because I want to walk us through what's in the past What's in the present and what's in the future? That helps me. When I, when I was studying this, I had to just get out some paper and write this all down so I got it straight in my mind. Okay, So let's just do this. Let's look at verse 5. Here's what verse 5 says. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's past tense, right? Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. And like we talked about last week, he had spent about a month with them. And it seems that while he was with them, part of what he taught them was about the second coming of Jesus. So now, as he writes his second letter to them, he's just reminding them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Okay, That's what's happened in the past. This is not the first time the church in Thessalonica is hearing teaching about the second coming of Jesus. He's already talked to them about that. Now, what's happening in the present What's happening in the present is what we see in verses 6 and 7. So get your eyes back on the text. What do we see in verses 6 and 7? Verse 6, And you know what is restraining him, that is this man of lawlessness, now so that he may be revealed in his time. 
Okay. So at this point, the man of lawlessness hasn't yet been revealed. And there's something or someone restraining him. Maybe Paul already told them when he was with them who or what it is that's restraining them. He doesn't tell them again in the letter. So a lot of people make a lot of guesses about what that might be. I'm not going to spend time guessing. I don't know. Okay. Verse 7, here's still what's happening in the present. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, so what's happening now in the present? Well, what's happening now in the present is, yes, the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed, but the mystery of lawlessness is at work. Okay, well then a good question that you might ask is, well, what's the mystery of lawlessness that's already at work? We're going to find out in a little bit when we go back to verse 4 that the work that the man of lawlessness will do is a work of setting himself up as though he were God. Okay? The mystery of lawlessness, I think the way the church in Thessalonica would have understood this, when Paul tells them the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay? Already stuff is messed up. Here's what's messed up in Thessalonica. Let me tell you a little something about the city of Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they had a temple that was put up by the Roman rulers. And in that temple, it was kind of like an imperial cult. Okay, They were, the people of Thessalonica, were to worship the Roman rulers. In return for this great honor given to the Roman rulers, there's a temple there for them to do that. The Roman rulers were very kind to the people in Thessalonica. This is probably part of the cause of the persecution at the church in Thessalonica, because the Christians who now trust in Jesus as Lord and will not say that Caesar is Lord anymore, they're going to then be rejected. Oh, you don't care about our city? The reason our city is doing so well, the reason we're so wealthy and so well off as a city is because we acknowledge Caesar is Lord. There's a temple right there. And so Paul is letting them know, okay, this idea, this man of lawlessness who's going to come and do these crazy things, you already get a picture of it. Like the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay. You still tracking? If not, just nod and make me think you are. Great. Okay. So past, present, and then there's yet stuff to come in the future. Okay. Verse 3 said, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Here's again the order. Unless the rebellion comes first, as still in the future, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, otherwise known as the son of destruction. Now, verse 4. Here's what he's going to do. This man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what is this man of lawlessness going to do? He will exalt himself, setting himself up in the temple. Now, again, you could have discussion about, is the temple then going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Is he talking about some other temple? Is the idea of the temple of God just symbolic? Lots of people have lots of discussion about that. Regardless, the big idea is this man of lawlessness is setting himself up, proclaiming to be God. And obviously he's not. Well, who's going to fall for that? Like, is anybody going to fall for a man just coming on the scene and proclaiming himself to be God? Nobody's going to fall for that, are they? 
That sounds just utterly evil and kind of foolish. Like, who's going to believe that? Here's what it says in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Why are people going to fall for this one who would so arrogantly exalt himself and say that he is God? Well, it's because with him comes, he comes by the activity of Satan and he comes with power using false signs and wonders. Deceiving millions, it says, and with all wicked deception. And here's who's going to fall for it. Billions of people. Here's how Paul says it. Wicked deception for those who are perishing. Who's perishing? Those who have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have rejected Jesus as Lord. They're perishing. And they are going to be the ones who fall for this powerful one sent from Satan with all sorts of false signs and wonders. Why? Because, why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. We know people like this, right? This is not just, so, so, we know people who have refused to love the truth and so be saved. They are perishing. And they are the ones who are going to be especially susceptible to the kind of deception that is yet to come in the future. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is people that people in Thessalonica are surrounded by. This is people that we're surrounded by. Now, this can sound quite hopeless. It sounds bad. So should the church in Thessalonica be living in fear? Okay, it's going to get really bad. I get it. Right? What about us? This is still in the future for us, right? Jesus hasn't come back still. The tribulation hasn't started yet. The man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. So should we just kind of live in fear? What, what about us? Well, I love that. You guys notice maybe that I skipped over a verse. Do you notice that? What verse did I skip? Skip Verse 8. Go back to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You read about this one sent from Satan with all sorts of power, wicked deception, false signs and wonders. But then you remember this truth. And Paul reminds them of this truth. But Jesus is coming. And this one who seems so powerful, exalting himself as God, deceiving billions of people. What happens when Jesus comes? When the Lord Jesus comes, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing, simply by the appearance of his coming. This is our Jesus. So application of this section. Let me just say this. Read the Bible And trust the Bible more than all other resources. There's probably two ways that we, you know, when it comes to these details about the second coming of Jesus, 
Some of you might be the kind of person that says, I'm not going to pay any attention to this. Maybe it's because it sounds too confusing, or maybe because for you, it's like, man, I heard all about this when I was younger, and I'm just kind of fed up with it, and I'm just done talking about the second coming of Jesus. I would encourage you, don't be done talking about and thinking about and praying for the second coming of Jesus. It's all over scripture, and we cannot ignore it. It affects the way that we live. So pay attention to what scripture has to say about the second coming of Jesus. Now, on the other end, there are those of you who just love this stuff. You can't get enough. Soon as a guy makes a new YouTube video, soon as an author writes a new book, soon as that guy on TV starts talking about it, you're all ears. And that's fine to be listening to, but you need to be discerning because a lot of the people that have a whole lot to say, they're the ones writing certain study Bibles and they're the ones, uh, you know, getting, getting lots of money for having a TV show. They're the ones putting up YouTube videos. You need to be careful what you're reading and make sure that you're reading and trusting the Bible more than all other resources. Study notes in a Bible, helpful, but it's not the word of God. It just happens to be on the same page, right? Um, So be careful. Read and trust the Bible more than all other resources. This is important when it comes to topics like end times and many other things as well. All right. We're racing through this last part. Don't worry. It's been long, uh, but we're going to get through this together. I love this. You don't want to miss this. So what? Verses 13 to 15. Paul's message to them, remember who you are and stand firm. Listen to verse 13 and 14 first. Just think about this. Paul is a missionary. Paul is an apostle, but I also think Paul is just a pastor. And remember how these people are feeling? How are they feeling? Shaken, alarmed. They're, they're, they're deceived, right? And Paul cares deeply about them. Remember, somebody's been teaching them that Jesus already came back. They're probably really nervous that they missed out on this. So listen to how Paul writes to them, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who you are. Remember who you are, church. You have been beloved by the Lord. You are those who have been chosen by God to be saved. You are those who are being sanctified by the Spirit. You're believing in the truth. You are those who have been called by God through the gospel. You are those who are going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who you are. How do you guard against this kind of deception? Well, in part, it's remember who you are. And then verse 15, a command. Verse 15 says this. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What is he telling them to do? Stand firm. 
No, I'm coaching Little League again now this year, uh, and I enjoy coaching, but still at the age that I'm coaching, there have to be frequent reminders that standing like this with your hands behind your back is not the way you get ready for the ball to come to you, right? Uh, what you do in most sports, you have to tell, like a lot of times in a lot of sports, you're telling kids, you need to stand shoulder width apart. Like if you're thinking football, you're playing on the offensive line and you're just kind of like standing around rather than standing firm. You're going to get knocked flat by a guy who's probably pretty big. Right. And so a coach will tell them you need to stand firm, get yourself a solid foundation so that you're ready for whatever comes at you. So that's what Paul is telling them. Stand firm and hold to have a tight grip on what everything you see on YouTube. No, have a tight grip on the traditions that you were taught by us. He can't refer them to the New Testament. This is one of the first New Testament books written. It's not put together yet. So he talks about, remember when I was with you, and now the first letter I wrote to you. Hold on to that stuff. Don't believe anything that anybody happens to say comes in in a word, comes in a letter. They're saying all this stuff. Don't believe all that. Stand firm and hold tightly to what you've been taught. Is there any application in any of this for us, or is this just for them? This is just for them, isn't it? Or is it for us? Maybe, too. Here's the application for us, I think. Stuff is going to get worse. Stuff is going to get worse. I would just ask you this. Are you saved? <laughs> are you saved? Are you, do you know that you are one beloved by God? Do you know yourself to be one who has been chosen by him to be saved? Do you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? If not, there's not a lot of hope. You're going to be one of the ones who is perishing and will be very easily deceived. God will give you over to a strong delusion to believe what is not true. Are you saved? If not, I urge you to repent and believe the gospel. You don't know what that is. Let's talk. Are we saved and are we ready to stand firm? Are we ready to stand firm? We live in a day where the fact checkers need to have fact checkers to check the fact checkers, right? We don't know who to believe anymore, right? We've been told you can't believe the news media. We probably had that figured out by ourselves, but they're not the only ones who are at work deceiving us. A lot of times it comes in much more subtle ways. What we choose to look at and listen to for entertainment, there's some pretty subtle deception going on in a lot of what we use and call entertainment. Curriculum taught in schools can be deceptive. We can't trust everything taught to us by teachers or professors or experts in whatever field. And so are we ready to stand firm? Let me ask this question, especially to parents. The number of parents here today, parents listening online. Let me ask you this. Are you standing firm? And are you grounded enough? Listen, parents, are you grounded enough in the truth of God's word that you're actively preparing your kids for the onslaught of deception that they will face in the years to come? We're, we're good at recognizing a lot of dangers and making sure we're preparing our kids for dangers, okay? When a stranger does this, I want you to respond in this way, right? We're recognizing that water is dangerous, 
And so we are responsible and we have our kids take swimming lessons so they know how to be in the water. There's a real danger. And so we want to protect our kids. We want our kids to be prepared for all sorts of things, right? Again, I'm coaching Little League. Encourage, you know, dads, go play catch with your son. That's a great way to just kind of get them going in some of these. We're preparing our kids for a softball season, a baseball season that's finally now starting. You're preparing your kids for college, preparing them for a career. But listen, parents, how much time are you giving them? Are you giving to helping them to know for sure, here's who I am in Christ. And here's what the truth is. So that when all sorts of deception starts to come their way, and I'm not talking, hey, when they leave your house and they're like in college and there's some deception, oh yeah, that'll happen then, but it's going to start way, way before that. Like when your kids are eight, nine, ten years old and they start to have some questions and they're curious and they even ask you some questions and it seems like you don't care or you're a little like, I don't really know and you don't really dig in, they're going to start to look for answers to their questions in other places. Because they know how to get on the internet, right? So deception can come in so many different ways. And so you can't just start preparing for that, them for that in their junior year of high school just before they leave home. We must, as parents, be doing the work with our kids from a young age, teaching them to think with a biblical worldview about all things so that their feet are shoulder-width apart, grounded, standing firm, so that whatever comes at them, they're ready to push back. And not be easily knocked over. There's a lot in this for us. Parents, I'm concerned about our kids. Uh, Maybe you are too. And I'd love to help any of you who are looking for some resources. How can I better help my kids in this area? Lots of stuff available for us out there. Like I said, rather than talk about prayer, I'm just going to close with prayer. Using verses 16 to 17 as the content of that prayer. Here's... Here's what it says. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. So God, that's what I pray. Pray in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is Lord. I pray that you would, because you love us, that you would give us eternal comfort. Not the kind of comfort that comes from like good news that could be bad news tomorrow. But give us the kind of comfort that comes from knowing that all things are in your control. Give us eternal comfort. And God, give us good hope. Again, not the kind of hope that the world has that quickly fades away, that's based in our comfort and our success and all sorts of other things. God, give us the kind of hope that's grounded in the solid rock of your word and in the person of Jesus Christ through your grace. And God, I pray for our church, I pray for me, that you would comfort our hearts. And that you would establish us, that you would strengthen us in every good work and word for the sake of your name. Amen.